Although American Civil War and UK history is a hobby, there are small costs associated with running a podcast. So if you enjoy our content, please support the show. You can do this by pressing the support the show button or pressing on the link to buy me a coffee in the show notes. Thank you for your continued support. Daz, American Civil War and UK history. Cheers. Hello, I'm Daz and welcome to American Civil War and UK History Podcast. This presentation is available as a video on our YouTube channel and as a podcast from wherever you get your podcast from. And remember, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and I'm also part of the Unfiltered Historian team. So joining me today is Terry Rensel. Welcome, Terry. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me today. So Terry is currently the Executive Director of Central Virginia Battlefields Trust and is also on the Emergency Awards Editorial Board. But before we get into all that, Terry, tell us about where you grew up and how did you first become interested in the American Civil War and history? Uh, thanks, Des. I grew up in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, in the northwestern corner of uh, the state of Pennsylvania, a um, small town outside of, of Erie by the name of Girard. You see the, uh, the picture you have up there on the screen of, of the clock in the square. And I'll tell you the story behind that monument in the background here uh, in a short while. Uh, always had an interest in, in politics and, and history and nonfiction. Uh, growing up, I you know, was always a reader and I started off uh, you know, with nonfiction. I actually started off reading uh, sports biographies and autobiographies. And that just kind of rolled on into reading other nonfiction. And, uh, you know, to this day, most of my reading uh, for, for pleasure is uh, still mostly nonfiction. Um, Erie, Pennsylvania, a couple of, uh, you know, interesting uh, pieces of American history that, that go with, with the community. Uh, when it comes to the Civil War, of course, it's uh, the home of Strong Vincent and the 83rd uh, Pennsylvania Volunteers, as well as the 111th Pennsylvania and the 145th Pennsylvania, but even locally, those other two units uh, get overlooked. Uh, everybody knows all about uh, Strong Vincent, if for no other reason that there is, um, it is now a middle school, but uh, in my youth and growing up, it was a high school named uh, after Strong Vincent, Strong Vincent High School. Uh, there's also a a school district and a high school in the region uh, named for John McLean, who's the original uh, regimental commander of the 83rd Pennsylvania, the General McLean School District and General McLean High School. Uh, McLean died at Gaines Mill in 1862, leading the regiment. He was a colonel. He was uh, finally awarded uh, brigadier rank uh, posthumously in the 1890s. Uh, so you have that Civil War connection, and with my background, I don't know if you can see this, but the Battle of Lake Erie and the War of 1812, uh, Oliver Hazard Perry and the Battle of Lake Erie, where uh, the fleet was built in Erie, sailed out of, out of Erie and defeated a British fleet near Putin Bay, Ohio, uh, on the western uh, portion of the lake. Erie sits kind of in the center of, of Lake Erie. So those were the two connections to the history, local history that also had an impact on, on American and, and world history. 
And that was my first introduction uh, to, to history and, and figures in history. Okay, cool. And so you also served for a time after you finished school in the one, is it the one, 112 Pennsylvania National Guard, which has roots back to the 83rd Pennsylvania Volunteers. So tell us a little bit about how you got into the service and then also the history behind the 83rd, which is very important. Uh, the, the first 112th Infantry Battalion of the Pennsylvania National Guard uh, was uh, based in Erie. Uh, it, it's no longer headquartered in, in Erie. The uh, armory building at uh, 6th and Parade Street, the historic armory building, still stands. Uh, it has been bought by uh, a local company, the Erie Insurance Group, and converted into offices. But they've, they've saved the building, and within the building, there is a, a display and a history of, of the unit. And they are the direct descendant uh, military entity from the 83rd Pennsylvania. Uh, it's a direct line of of lineage from that unit. Uh, the battalion call sign is still strong for Strong Vincent. And if you could actually go back uh, one yep. screen there, Daz, to the, to oh. the um, battalion crest, the cross in that goes back to the Union Fifth Corps. And that, uh, that's how they show the the tie to the, the 83rd Pennsylvania. Um, the, the symbol at the bottom refers to the battalion's service in the First World War in France. And it's been a long time. I cannot tell you exactly what the, the castle in the upper right-hand corner of, of the battalion crest stands for uh, anymore. But, uh, you know, the, the units served you know, proudly as uh, at the time known as the 16th Pennsylvania uh, in World War I uh, in France, the, the, the uh, uh, entire division, the 28th Infantry Division, uh, served with honor and distinction, distinction in World War II, uh, most well-known for uh, its part in the Battle of the Bulge. And I, I joined uh, the unit uh, in 1986, in December 1986, I joined the National Guard, uh, quite honestly, to, to mostly help uh, pay for college. The, the military here in the States uh, would do tuition reimbursement with the National Guard. So I was in each semester, they would uh, reimburse me a portion of my college tuition as long as, you know, I was serving you know, honorably and you know, enrolled in college in, in good order. And I was part of a battalion headquarters company and a member of the communications platoon. Uh, so my job, when we were doing our training, we mostly ran combo lines between the battalion headquarters and the different uh, line companies of the battalion. Uh, if we would have ever seen action in wartime, all the people doing my job, which uh, was 31 kilo at the time, we would have all been humping radios on our backs, handing them to lieutenants and captains uh, on the battlefield. 
And that was so long ago that the Army actually eliminated the 31 kilo MOS as a communications MOS. And after several years of letting it rest, they uh, brought it back as a, a dog hand uh, MOS for, for military police. So, uh, you know, you've been, uh, you know, you're old and you know, you've been out of the military a long time when they've eliminated your military job. <laughs> <laughs> And am I right in say, sorry, am I right in saying that a lot of the volunteer regiments can, I mean, the, the National Guard regiments can trace their routes back to, to the volunteer regiments from the Civil War? Um, not, not a lot. Um, quite honestly, it, it's more so in the South uh, mm-hmm. than in the North that a, a lot of those uh, regiments uh, in the South uh, trace their routes back to uh, Confederate uh, regiments uh, in the in the north. You know, some of it is unofficial. I mean, our you know, our flags for for the first hundred and twelfth at the time you now had all the banners uh, attached to them for Civil War battlefields and, and battles. Um, there's, to my knowledge, only a small handful of National Guard units that are actually recognized by the Department of Defense mm-hmm. uh, with their, their lineage like that. And the, the first 112th is, is one of them. Okay. Uh, now, of course, it's been a long time since I've, I've given any thought or done any research into that. So, you know, I could be sharing outdated information with you about that. Uh, so if, uh, if someone knows different, I am not afraid to be corrected. Okay. Um, so the 83rd, uh, the 83rd Pennsylvania, please tell us about those. Um, the, the roots of the, the 83rd Pennsylvania go back to uh, what was called the Erie Regiment, uh, which was originally known as the Wayne Guards. Uh, Colonel John McClain in 1859 formed a mostly ceremonial unit known as the Wayne Guards, uh, named for in honor of uh, American Revolutionary War hero, uh, General Matt Anthony Wayne. Um, The man who, uh, Matt Anthony Wayne once said to George Washington, now I would attack hell itself if only you will plan it. So um, no, that is definitely a man I would follow into battle. Mm -hmm. Uh, When when the war broke out and uh, President Lincoln called for volunteers, Pretty much the Wayne Guard, you know, in mass, joined up along with um, with other men, became known as the Erie Regiment. It was a 90-day regiment. Um, they had 12 companies of 100 men, uh, plus a regimental band. And when they were accepted into state service, uh, they would only accept 10 companies of 70 men each and no band, they, the original uh, camp and training grounds is actually in the area of Erie, and pardon me, in the downtown area, pardon me once again, in what is today the downtown area and, and was uh, from the, the Bay Front to modern day 6th Street and between uh, modern day German Street to modern day Parade Street, which the old 
Erie Armory sits on the corner of modern day Sixth and Parade Street. So the the modern and now historic armory stands on part of the original training camp for for the Erie Regiment. Uh, they were a 90-day regiment. They were shipped down to the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, uh, where they went into camp. Um, shortly after going into camp, Colonel McLean was put in command of the training camp. Uh, all the units in western Pennsylvania uh, congregated in the Pittsburgh area. They opened a second camp a little further up the Allegheny River, uh, about seven or eight miles further north upriver. The Erie Regiment relocated to there and served out their 90-day uh, term of enlistment. They were never uh, called on to uh, federal duty. They never left the training camps in Pittsburgh. When they got back to Erie, uh, most of the regiment re-enlisted into a three-year volunteer regiment, which became the 83rd Pennsylvania. Uh, John McLean was made the colonel of that regiment. Strong Vincent, who was a private in the original Wayne Guards, uh, was made um, adjutant in the Erie Regiment, was elected as um, lieutenant colonel of, of the 83rd Pennsylvania uh, after after training there, they uh, were shipped by rail to Harrisburg and from there to the Washington DC area where they went into camp um, in what was then the uh, Union Third Corps and the uh, brigade commander was uh, General Daniel Butterfield. Uh, by the time they uh, went down to the peninsula here in Virginia in the spring of 1862, uh, shortly after arriving, uh, Army of the Potomac Commander uh, George McClellan created the Union Fifth Corps, put uh, Fitz John Porter in command of that, and transferred uh, Daniel Butterfield's uh, division or um, brigade into the Union Fifth Corps. And by the time all the fighting took place uh, on the seven days, they were part of the Union Fifth Corps, which was, you know, brand new, brand new Union Corps pretty much at that time. Okay. Um, so growing up in uh, the town you did, and obviously around that, and then also joining that regiment, you know, so um, where does your, where does the, so does that where the fascination uh, for the 83rd begins for you or is it to go back further because you obviously grew up around that history? Um, quite honestly, you know, I was always more of a generalist as a historian, um, except for, you know, one real interesting uh, fascination that I had from uh, relatively early on, which is um, Winston Churchill, which we can go into uh, into later, but uh, the the local Civil War history of, of the area I grew up in, well, Strong Vincent, uh, the 83rd Pennsylvania and everything was always kind of a, a latent thing, always kind of below the surface. Mm -hmm. 
wasn't something that I gave much thought to till, you know, I got a little old. Okay. And that's so I don't want to say I came to it by accident because that's not the case, mm -hmm. but it was something that came to me a little later on as an interest. Yeah. But it's really nice that you have that connection though, isn't it? With, with, you know, your local area, you know, you must be proud of it now. You know, as, as an older, you know, as you get older. Um, yeah, okay, mate. Absolutely. So let's uh, talk about the, uh, you, so you have an ancestral connection um, to a member of the 140, uh, 45th Pennsylvania Volunteers. So tell us a little bit about this. Uh, it is it is not a uh, blood connection, uh, you know, quite honestly. Uh, my great-great-grandmother, and this is on my father's side, my great-great-grandfather was husband number three to her. Uh, her first husband was a member of the 145th Pennsylvania. And uh, 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 his name is Elijah Foster. And there's really not much known about him. Uh, the only record in, in the archives, uh, here in the States National Archives, you can... You can search Civil War soldier records through the National Park Service website. And the only information they have on him there is that he was a member of Company C of the 145th Pennsylvania. And then, and there's conflicting reports that either in May of 1863 or May of 1864, uh, he tr transferred into the um, the Veterans Reserve, which was um, part of units for those men who were too injured to actually still serve actively on the line, but not too injured to be able to uh, fill roles and do duties, uh, you know, in the rear. So he was a member of the 14th Battalion of the uh, Veterans Reserve. Uh, which was actually the uh, unit that witnessed and um, helped carry out the sentences uh, against the uh, Booth co-conspirators oh. after uh, President oh. Lincoln's assassination. Um, back in, in Erie at the Hagen History Center, uh, which is the local Erie County Historical Society and Museum, uh, a fantastic modern facility they have there that um, just opened in the last couple of years. They have the, the muster book for the 145th, and I was actually able to, to take a look at it on a research trip uh, home. And um, Elijah Foster is listed as having gone to the Veterans Reserve in May of 1864, but there's no information as to why. I do not know if he was wounded in battle or if he was, was you know, long-term illness and was just never fit for, for field duty. Uh, the uh, archives in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, I was able to find one letter in existence from him uh, to family back in the Erie, Pennsylvania area from December of 1863. And he was uh, writing from hospital in Philadelphia. And uh, 
telling the family to write to him in care of that hospital in Philadelphia at the time. So it's, uh, it's a big mystery. He passed away in 1866. Uh, my great-great-grandfather married his widow uh, in 1870, 1871. And like I said, uh, my great-great-grandfather was husband number three. Uh, Elijah Foster was her first husband. There was a husband in between. Okay, cool. But still, it's still a cool story. And it's nice to have that little connection, isn't it? You know. Uh, yes. I um, When I got here uh, three years ago and... You know, I was just learning about that story as I was transitioning my move from Alaska to, mm-hmm. to Fredericksburg, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, when I told Chris Mikowski, you know, what regiment uh, Elijah Foster was in, he quickly looked it up and saw that it was, you know, Union Second Corps. And he just went, ooh, kind of, you know, <laughs> flinched a little bit because uh, – the Union Second Corps had a really bad day here at Fredericksburg oh, in uh, December of 1862. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I've noticed, obviously, you still go home quite a lot, don't you? So, I mean, after, I mean, we'll get into it later. Obviously, you spend a lot of time away from home. So being able to go back to your your home roots, is that, that must be quite quite cool for you, you know? Uh, absolutely. I, I spent 12 years in Alaska and, you know, um, Alaska summers, are the reward you get for surviving the Alaska winter. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, so you, you couldn't pry me out of Alaska in the summertime to save my life. Except for three years ago, I left Alaska in early June uh, of 2019 to move here for this job. So, um, yeah, you know, that actually, I planned that poorly. I, I didn't get one last summer in, in Alaska. I left at the beginning of summer. <laughs> Okay, so let's go back a little bit again further, because obviously before all that, before you have your big move to Alaska, you do spend you spend time at the University of Pittsburgh at Bradford, in Bradford, Pennsylvania, where you will meet. Now, this is the this is the thing. Um, he keeps saying you're the evil twin, but you keep saying. So, what is the story behind the evil twin? And tell us about your time at university. Okay. Um. Yes, I, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Pittsburgh at Bradford in Bradford, Pennsylvania, which did not look anywhere near as nice as uh, Does it look so nice now? <laughs> uh, on, on, on the screen. That is, uh, that is the, the modern entrance uh, to campus back in, uh, in my day. It was just a little, you know, yeah. blue sign with, with yellow text on it, uh, blue and and gold, the colors of the University of, of Pittsburgh uh, system. Of course, you know, the uh, University of Pittsburgh based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, of course, and Pittsburgh named after uh, William Pitt. So that, that's that connection. Well, mm-hmm. I met uh, Chris Mikowski, you know, who you referred to as um, you know, there in the intro to this, uh, we were in the same freshman orientation group. So, uh, you know, he was one of the first people I met uh, at, at 18 years old when I stepped onto the, the Pitt Bradford campus uh, that first day. And uh, the picture on the screen, the, the aerial of the campus, uh, if you look at that, you see the, the uh, buildings with the parking lot uh, behind them, mm-hmm. uh, those buildings were in existence there. 
the four four buildings in the center of the picture around the clump of trees were in existence and uh, two of the dormitories kind of in the top center of the picture were in existence at that time. Uh, all those other buildings in that picture are new in the last uh, uh, 30 years and uh, they're actually building two more buildings at the time. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, uh, Chris Mikowski and I were in the same freshman orientation group. Um, I went to college, uh, quite honestly, to be a, a high school social studies teacher. Uh, Chris was there as a, as a broadcast communication major. Um, during all the, the startup at the beginning of the semester, uh, I got involved with the campus radio station. Uh, uh, growing up, I grew up around a bunch of guys who, who did radio. Uh, for for a living, so I always had a, an interest in it's like, oh, here's something fun I can do on the side. Um, I quickly decided I I didn't want to be a, a school teacher. I have two aunts that were school teachers, and it's a commitment. And <clears throat> pardon me. And I I quickly realized. Um, uh, pardon me one second. Hmm. I quickly realized that I didn't have the the commitment necessary to be to be a school teacher. So I I remained a history political science major. Uh, was doing college radio. Chris and I did a radio show together as as freshmen. Uh, three days a week, we did the the morning show on the campus radio station. Um, I started taking broadcasting classes, and uh, by the time it was all said and done, I ended up. Uh, with a double major in broadcast communication and history of political science. Um, I went off and, and started a career in, in broadcasting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, history, history was, history and political science were my first love, but it's like, you know, if you're not going to law school, if you're not going to be a school teacher, if you're not going to politics, not a whole lot you can do with with a history political science degree as, you know, a 22 year old. Nope. Um, and so that kind of began my odyssey in, in working in, in broadcasting. So what was the radio show actually about? Um, it was just, you know, typical, you know, morning radio show. We played mm -hmm. music, we, you know, chatted among ourselves. Uh, you know, it was, it was a free form sort of thing, but it was, it was mostly playing music. I mean, oh. I, you know, here, here in the States, you know, most of your, you know, commercial radio morning drive shows that they, they call them morning zoos. Mm -hmm. And it's usually just, you know, you know, the hosts, you know, mostly talking and playing very little music. Well, that's not the way, you know, we did college radio. It was mostly music with a little bit of talking. You know, Chris and I would just play off each other a bit. Well, we we quickly learned that we share a birthday, and that same same day, same year. So that's how we became, you know, the twins. <laughs> um, now, as now, as I say, you know, he's my twin brother from another mother and another father, <laughs> um, and then. Uh, we're both baseball fans, and we're both fans of the New York Yankees baseball team, so we had that in common. And so it was just, you know, 
this, you know, bit of serendipity. And, um, you know, we drifted apart for, for a couple of years post-college in our early 20s. And then we, we drifted back together. And, you know, we've been real close friends since. And um, the, the evil twin thing, that started with him. Um, you know, the, the joke at the time, you know, he was a family man, a college professor. Uh, he served on the, on the school board of, of the district that he lived in. So, you know, he was a, a fine, upstanding member of his community. And I was the guy moving around the country uh, working in, in radio, um, public radio, non-commercial radio uh, here in the States. Um, no, not the wild and crazy life of, of a commercial radio jock. So, uh, no, that kind of became the, the joke that, you know, I'm the, I'm the bachelor moving around the country for radio jobs and, you know, radio, you know, has this, you know, assumption that you're this, you know, crazy, nutty, you know, out of control guy. So, um, the fact that I'm none of those things. No, no, that's how the whole uh, evil twin thing started. And, and doesn't he mention it at the beginning of his grant, at the beginning of the grant book? Is that correct? That, that that's what I was going to say. He, um, yeah, that's why I first heard uh, it. Anyway, his the the grant book that Chris Mikowski wrote um, about uh, you know Grant writing his memoirs and willing himself to live long enough to write them. Um, <laughs> yeah. The dedication of that book is to to my evil twin. Terry Rensel. So we, we jokingly call it, you know, my book. Yeah. Um, and when, when I first got here three years ago and attended my first uh, emerging civil war conference, everyone was trying to figure out who I was. They, they knew the name and they knew I had this long connection to Chris and they all knew that, you know, he dedicated one of his books to me, but they didn't know the evil twin thing you know, they, they knew nothing about me. I was just this, this name, you know, faceless name uh, who lived in Alaska, who, you know, a couple of years previously uh, had joined the editorial board. And that was my only involvement with, with emerging civil war at the time uh -huh. uh, was the, the far North and the far Western outpost uh, of the group uh, up there in Alaska. And okay. so I had to, uh, to spend some time, during that uh, symposium, explaining to my colleagues in emerging civil war exactly the specifics of the connection. <laughs> and you know what? The first time I, because oh, I actually listened to it on all audio, audio, audio book, I had it did make me chuckle when he said that. I wasn't expecting it, you know. But there you go. It is funny. Um, okay, right. So you'll move to Alaska. How does this come about? And yeah. Um. I spent I spent 25 years working in in public broadcasting, and um, I always said uh, I mean, broadcasting in general is a bit, bit of a gypsy business. You, you go where the work takes you, and um, also, you know, my personal philosophy is I will stay somewhere as long as I'm a good fit for it, and and it's a good fit for me. If it's not both those things, then I'm not doing the station or myself a service by, by still doing it. Um, by 
2007, I was back living, living in Pennsylvania. I'd um, gone out of the, the broadcasting uh, business at that point, just seeing, you know, maybe there was you know, something else uh, for me to do. And the job as the program director for the public radio station in, in Homer, KBBI, uh, came up. And I had a couple of, um, of former bosses who lived in Alaska at the time. You know, one was the manager of the public broadcasting operation in Anchorage, and the other one was out on in uh, Western Alaska in a uh, small uh, native community named Bethel. And so I, I reached out to them saying, you know, hey, I see that there's this job. And they're like, oh, you should definitely come to Alaska. It's fantastic. And, and there's, you know, lots of opportunity and everything. So I applied for the job. Uh, they did a, a telephone interview with me in uh, March of 2007. Got an email the, the next day from the boss wanting me to, um, to talk to the rest of the staff uh, that next day, and I did. And um, on St. Patrick's Day, uh, 2007, I got offered a job in, in Homer. And by the middle of April, I had landed in Homer, Alaska. I, uh, they hired me sight unseen. I accepted the job and moved there sight unseen. And um, you know, spent, spent 12 years there. The, the first nine as the program director for KBBI and the last three as the station manager. Uh, while I was there, I started. Uh, started graduate school. I, I called my midlife crisis. At 40 years old, I went back to school and got a master's in public administration from the University of Alaska Southeast out of Juneau, Alaska, uh, the state capital. And that entire program was all done online. Uh, we'd have to meet uh, in person, kind of like you and I are doing right now via Zoom. Um, we used uh, originally. Uh, a software program that belonged to the university, and then we moved off of that to um, a program in the Adobe uh, software suite called Adobe Connect. And uh, I kind of did it on the on the six-year plan. I took one class a semester. I took summers off the first couple of years, and I uh, got a master's in public administration with a a focus on leadership. And uh, by the time I I finished that degree, I'd become the, the station manager there of the radio station in Homer and uh, you know, really enjoyed going back to school in, you know, in my 40s and, uh, and doing it that way. It was a, it was a fantastic uh, experience for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what was life like in Alaska? Is it completely different to what it's like to living in, you know, mainstream America? You know, what, was that a shock for you at first or? Um, well, I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily sure I, I'd call it a shock. I mean, it was, it was interesting. It was, it was awe-inspiring. Um, the, the Homer area, the Kenai Peninsula is referred to as the banana belt of Alaska. Um, and I was, you know, Homer is right there at, at sea level, uh, on, 
on Catchmack Bay and Cook Inlet, which feeds, you know, you go around the, the corner in Cook Inlet and you're in the Northern Pacific. Um, the, the Homer Spit, which is the lower uh, picture, that sticks five miles out into Catchmack Bay. Um, the winters, I didn't find the winters that much different than growing up in, in Northwestern Pennsylvania and going to college in, in Bradford, Pennsylvania. Um, because being on the water, that helped keep things a little warmer in the winter and also a little cooler in the summer. Um, there was a, a bluff back behind, uh, above town, uh, where the, the picture of the spits taken, that's from up on top of uh, the bluff on, on East End Road, and that's 1,500 feet elevation. And up there, winter lasts six weeks to six to eight weeks longer than it does down in town. Mm. Uh, so the fact that I lived down in town, most of what I did was down in town. Um, it was dark longer uh, in the winter, but it really wasn't that much colder than what I grew up with. Um, I grew up in a small town. Uh, so living in a small town wasn't, wasn't that different. Um, you know, and just like, you know, any other small town, you, you find things to do to keep you occupied uh, mm -hmm. in, in the winter because it, it's, it's dark. You'd go to you know, work in the dark. You come home in the dark. Um, the, the mountains there on the south side of Catchmack Bay, in the winter, the sun wouldn't rise up above the mountains till after 10 a.m. Wow. So you'd have, you'd have, you know, you know, nautical dawn, you know, it would be light out, but you didn't actually see the sun till, you know, 10, 15, 10, 30 in the morning. And in the winter, it would pretty much just ride that mountain range. And by, you know, 4.30, the sun is set. Um, but you have really long dawn and dusk. So, you know, it wasn't like, oh, 4.30, it's, it's pitch black out. Um, in the summer, this time of year, around summer solstice, you have about 19 hours of daylight. Um, now, I could go two, two and a half months in the summer without ever having to put on the uh, headlights on my car in the wow. evening or in the morning. And, um, you know, the, the bars in Alaska, each municipality has a little bit of freedom to set their own hours and in homer the bars could stay open till 4 a.m <laughs> and, and uh, you was in there quite a lot was you <laughs> well no it's not that but mm. you you occasionally have it happen you don't realize how late it gets mm. in the summer because you're looking out the window and it's still daylight and still daylight and still daylight uh. and there were a couple times in the 12 years i was there that pardon me before you know it Bartender's making last call, and it's you know three forty-five in the morning, and you step outside and it's daylight. <laughs> you know the you know the you can see the sun's you know still setting in in the west, the, the dusk coming on, while the sun's actually rising in the east. Wow, that's mad. And and yeah, it, you know yeah, I would I would wear a sleep mask, um, beginning around Mother's Day till around Labor Day mm -hmm. because it would just be too light 
you know, too early in the morning. And in the summertime, you're frantic because it, it's daylight out all the time. And uh, Homer, is, you know, its economy is based around commercial fishing and, and tourism. And so the, the people who work in those fields call it the 100 Days of Madness. You basically make all your money for the year between Memorial Day and Labor Day. Mm-hmm. And people don't take any time off from work. The fact that I had a you know, relatively normal office job, and it's, it's funny that you think, you know, for me to call working in broadcasting a relatively normal job, because um, you're always on call uh, with a radio station. Um, you know, I actually you know, wasn't directly involved in that whole 100-day scramble. Uh, but in the winter, you know, the population of the community would, would drop by 40%. Yeah. And so in, in the winter, you've got to find, you know, stuff to do. And um, I wasn't a hockey player. I've never been on ice skates in my life, and I'm not about to start now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of reading, um, a lot of, you know, small groups of people coming up with, with things to do. Um, all the bars in town would have some sort of different thing to do each night of the week, a trivia night, an arts and crafts night. Um, you know, things that, that didn't necessarily revolve around drinking just happened to take place in, in a bar. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, was definitely an interesting uh, experience and lifestyle. We had one grocery store in town. Um, I like to tell people that most of the time I lived there, the closest Walmart was, you know, 250 miles away, one way. <laughs> um, when you actually made trips up to Anchorage to, the, to quote unquote, the city, because um, half the population of the state of Alaska lives in the Anchorage Bowl area. Um, that's when you would go do all your shopping for the year for things that you couldn't get you know, in Homer. Um, and, and sometimes couldn't even get, if you ordered online through, through Amazon or something. So um, it was a fantastic experience. It was, you know, awe-inspiring. I mean, the, the, the view in that, that picture is, you know, I had a similar view out the window of my, uh, of my house for 12 years. Yeah. Now, I, I wasn't up on top the, the ridge like that, but, um, you know, most of the 12 years I was there, I either, you know, rented apartments or houses that had a view of Catchmack Bay and the mountains. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'd have That's moose nice. in my yard and, and you'd have to be <laughs> careful around the moose. Yeah. Um, especially when they had their, their calves because you didn't want to get too close to a, a mama and her newborn. Because uh, moose can can kick in all directions, <laughs> and also you probably learned how to drive in the snow. Which because uh, well, I you did put a funny post up uh, when it snowed in Virginia last time, you know, and uh, of course it didn't bother you because you'd lived in <laughs> lived well, in Alaska well, twelve years. <laughs> well, growing up in northwestern Pennsylvania, you know, oh, of course, I, I yeah, that as well, yeah, winter and everything. Mm-hmm. So I mean, if and, and and I drive a I, I drive a Jeep Cherokee, so it's like as as long as I had clearance, I was good. Uh, the problem was, you know, so many people 
either got got their cars stuck or got um, uh, or went into ditches that it, it closed all the roads and made it hard to get around. And and the day of that storm, by the time I did get home, my apartment complex hadn't been plowed out, and I did end up getting stuck oh. basically right in front of my my apartment because you know I was pushing snow and it got underneath the car. Fair enough. We'll let you off. <laughs> Yeah, I was kind of embarrassed by that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's talk about emerging civil war because this role comes up. You're 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 settled in in um, I need to say Virginia. Then. Sorry, you're settled in Alaska. You've known Chris for some time. So in that time period, you're obviously in contact with him still. Is that correct? Oh, a- absolutely. Um, he'd he'd started the, the emerging civil war stuff with uh, you know with Chris. White and um, another guy whose name always escapes me, and I apologize for that. But it was uh, three of them. They were, you know, uh, sitting at the uh, the National Park uh, Service quarters at the uh, Stonewall Jackson death site, uh, s- sitting on on the porch there, uh, having a beer, smoking a cigar. When they came up with the idea. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they started, you know, doing the blog and uh, Chris Mikowski and Chris White were uh, writing books for the National Park Service and uh, and now the Funk Publishing Company, Thomas Publishing, which was out of Gettysburg. And uh, when when that publisher went uh, out of business, they uh, Chris White pitched the book series to Ted Savas at Savas Beatty Publishing and uh, and he bid on it and as they say uh, the rest is history at that point mm-hmm. and every time Chris had a book out he'd send me a copy of it in, in Alaska and that's how uh, that's how I started building my my emergent civil war library or at least my you know, Christopher W. Mikowski PhD uh, library <laughs> and back in um 2015, 2016, uh, Chris had been looking for a way to, to get me in, involved in an emerging civil war because of my interest in history. And by then I had you know, become much more interested in the civil war, but I wasn't you know, near any you know, civil war site. So uh, he invited me to join the editorial board because uh, like he, he said at the time, all my years working in, in broadcasting, I know a good story when I hear one. Mm. And so there were other people on the editorial board who could, you know, who n- could look at the nitty gritty of the history and could look at the nitty gritty, gritty of the writing. And I was the guy who, is this an interesting story? Yeah. And of course, in that time period, he could send you stuff anyway via email. So it wasn't a problem, was yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely not. Okay, so you have written a few blogs yourself lately, and uh, or you have been doing over time. And just recently, I do believe you have a piece in this book here that I put up on the screen. Um, so, how's the writing going? Do you enjoy writing? Uh, yes, I do, and I'll admit, writing does not come easy to me. Um. I can go on and on verbally, you know, 
all night and, and go off on tangents and and have you confused as to you know where the heck is where the heck am I taking you and then you know bring it back around. Um, when I write, I'm very sparse mm-hmm. with my words. I actually have to try to you know write more because I've you know quite honestly trained for for writing for radio. You tell the story in as few words as possible. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I actually got here. I started actually contributing to the blog because, well, now I'm, I'm in the heart of, of Civil War history. Uh, I worked in public television when the Ken Burns, well, actually, I was, I was a college senior when the Ken Burns Civil War series ran on public television. But I spent the, my first couple of years out of college working at a public radio, public TV uh, combo and, and working in the control room where every public television fundraising drive, we were rerunning the Ken Burns Civil War. So, you know, I uh, became acquainted with, with that documentary series, you know, inside and out very intimately. Um, when the, the 10th anniversary ECW book series uh, came about, uh, the, the first book in that series um, was summer of 63 Gettysburg. There was also a, a Telehoma and a and Vicksburg book out at that time. And for the Gettysburg book, I wrote a piece about Strong Vincent at Gettysburg and in memory, because there are actually three monuments on Little Round Top to Strong Vincent. And, um, right next to the 44th New York Castle monument, that's the big castle on, on Little Round Top, the two big giant boulders that, that sit next to it, uh, chiseled into one of them. And it's hard to read now, but back in the day, they, you know, put, you know, um, lie on it or something so that the, the words would jump out, but it's, you know, engraved there that, you know, here's the spot where strong Vincent fell. And that's chiseled into, into the rock there. And that, was chiseled there during the war still. It was um, sometime in late 1864, early 1865, someone went up on top of Little Round Top and they saw that uh, chiseled under the rock. Nobody has any idea, you know, who did it or, or, or exactly when. Um, and then as you start down down the hill, uh, back towards the, the road, you have um, a marker that looks, that's kind of flat, that looks kind of like a, a gravestone. And that is believed to have been the location of uh, the, the hospital or the, the triage location there on, on Little Round Top. Um, and that's also, you know, to to Vincent and his, his wounding and, and being, you know, you know, treated there. And the, the monument that's for that, that sits on the National Park Service ground today is actually a reproduction. Uh, in 1976, it, it was found to have uh, been damaged in some fashion, whether it was, you know, vandalized or just broke, but it was, was snapped in half. And the, the original one now sits in the 
um, research room of the Erie County Public Library in, in Erie, Pennsylvania. And that was uh, put up um, I believe in in the late 18, uh, late 1860s, early 1870s. I don't have that off the, the top of my head, but that was the first mark marker placed on the battlefield outside of the National Cemetery. Oh. And, and then the, um, the picture you had early on uh, in the screen, the picture of the 83rd Pennsylvania Monument, uh, that was paid for by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, who at the time did not pay for monuments to individuals. So the joke is that is not Strong Vincent on top of the 83rd Pennsylvania Monument, mm -hmm. uh, although it absolutely is Strong Vincent. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Commonwealth would not pay for a, a monument to Vincent, so it was a monument to the 83rd Pennsylvania, and it was referred to as a you know, generic union officer. But uh, you take one look at it, and it's strong, Vincent, but the way they kind of say that it isn't, um, you know, that monument, you know, Vincent has his, you know, his sword raised over his head, and Vincent never had his sword on the battlefield that day. Uh, you might be able to see it over my uh, shoulder here. Uh, in the painting, but he is actually holding a riding crop mm -hmm. that his wife gave him as a gift. The The sword uh, stayed you know, with his horse during the battle. And so the, the monument there in Gettysburg has a Union officer with a sword above his head, thus it's not Strong Vincent. Even though you take one look at the face and it is, uh, if you go to, to Erie, Pennsylvania, outside of the Erie County uh, Public Library main branch, the, the Blasco uh, Library downtown on the Bayfront. There's a statue of Vincent. It looks exactly like the, the statue, uh, the, the figure on top of the statue at Gettysburg, except for in Erie, he does have the riding crop raised over his head and not the sword. Mm -hmm. um, the one of his two swords, sits in the uh, Hagen History Center in Erie because he had a ceremonial sword and then he had his, his battle sword. And the um, one of the swords is, is there in Erie. The other one is uh, housed at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Grant versus Lee book, uh, I have a piece in that about uh, Harris Farm. Battle of Harris Farm, and the uh, monument to the First Massachusetts Heavy Artillery, uh, which saw their first action at, at Harris Farm that day in May 1864. And uh, that is also a piece of ground that the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust owns and has preserved. And I do believe uh, that you, and, uh, you, you took me out there, uh, you, Tyler, and uh, Chris, so yeah. I remember that. Yes, and um, and later this year, uh, another book in the Emergence of War 10th Anniversary series on lost leaders is coming out, and I will have a piece in that about uh, Colonel John McLean of the 83rd Pennsylvania and his death at Gaines Mill. 
Okay. And it must be quite satisfying to see your name in print. Um, it is, it is quite something else. It is, um, yeah, it, it's a, it's a bit of a thrill. I, you know, quite honestly, never imagined I would ever, you know, write something that would be in a book. Yeah. And before the year's out, I'll have uh, three separate pieces in, in three separate books. So nice. No, that's, yeah. That's that's quite a thrill. It makes it all worth it, doesn't it? You know. Um, yeah. So the opportunity comes up, and the phone call comes, or the email comes, or something comes, and you end up in Fredericksburg. So tell us the story behind that. Um, in February, it was still winter of of twenty nineteen. So it was February, late February, maybe um, early March. Um, Chris Bukowski called me. Um, there were you know, there were some things going on organizationally here with with CDBT that they were looking for some some advice on. And Chris had told uh, he's on the board of the he's currently the board vice president of the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust. Uh, he wasn't at the time; he was just a, a, a regular board member. And he said, "Hey, I got this old college buddy." who has a master's in public administration, a focus on leadership. He's been running a nonprofit for, for three years, been working in it, you know, pretty much my entire professional life. Now, can I give him a call and pick his brain about some stuff? And, and they said, yes, the, the board, my board president, Tom Van Winkle, and the then vice president, Pete Kolkowski, gave Chris the okay to, to call me and, and, and have a conversation. And Chris and I talked for about 40 minutes um, one day. And a couple days later, he shoots me a text. It's like, hey, can I give your phone number to, to Pete Kolakowski? He'd like to talk to you some more. And I said, well, yeah, sure. And Pete probably called me within two hours of me telling Chris it was okay. Pardon me, and um, Pete and I had a very short conversation. It was about five minutes long. And um, by the time it was over, I said, I'm still thinking to myself, um, I think I have a job interview next week. Because <laughs> uh, he asked me if I would be willing to, you know, talk to a, a committee. You know, like this was like on a Thursday on, on a Tuesday morning. And I said, yeah, sure. Uh, apparently, yeah. A, a change was being made. Um, so I text Chris back and I go, you know, you know, hey, I, I think you set me up. And he texts him back going, well, what do you mean? I go, I think I have a job interview on Tuesday. All, all of a sudden my phone rings, it's Chris. It's like, what's going on? I go, I told him about the conversation. And things were moving fast enough at, at that point that, you know, I actually knew more of what was going on than he did. And so following Tuesday, um, I had an hour-long conversation via uh, Skype with three members of the CVBT board of directors. Um, about a week later, they asked me if I could come here to Fredericksburg. Um, you know, they'd reimburse me for, for an airplane ticket and everything if if I, you know, bought one, they wanted to, to talk to me some more and, you know, have an opportunity to have a longer 
conversation and, and everything. So, um, no, I made arrangements to, uh, to fly down here, uh, you know, le left Alaska on a Thursday night after my monthly board of directors meeting there, landed at uh, the Washington National Airport at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Chris picked me up at, at the airport. So I can say that well, that, that was my revenge on Chris. I made him pick me up, uh, you know, at, you know, Washington National Airport downtown Washington, D.C. at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. You know, came down here, stayed with, stayed with, uh, no, he and, he and Jennifer, uh, Chris's wife. Uh, that next morning, Saturday morning, he took me down to the CVBT office and left me. He had to speak to uh, a roundtable in Louisville, Kentucky that night. Wow. So yeah, he, you know, no, he drops me at the CVBT office at like, you know, 845 in the morning and no, takes off, takes off for Louisville. Um, I spend the day meeting, I think a grand total of, of 12 or 13 of the 15 members of the CVBT board of directors either in person, in, in group conversations, or one-on-one. -on -one. Um, two board members who live uh, remotely, uh, Eric Winberg and Robert Lee Hodge. I met with them over, um, over Skype. Uh, went, went to lunch with uh, some board members uh, that night, that evening. Uh, Tom Van Winkle, Pete Kolkowski, and I had dinner together, um, you know, uh, early in the evening. Um, Pete took me uh, back out to, to Chris's house because I was staying there. Um, no. Chris is out in Louisville, so I'm sitting there with, uh, with you know, Jennifer having a, having a beer, talking about things. And she's like, well, if you come here and everything... Um, the joke was that if I came here, every time I came by the house, I was supposed to take one of Chris's books with me. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's, he's got quite the, the personal Civil War library. Yes. Uh, it is, it is a, oh, a library nice. to be envied of. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and it was funny because, you know, that weekend was only the second time I'd ever met Jennifer. The first time was at their wedding. I came, I came from Alaska for, for Chris and, and Jennifer's wedding in, in 2014. And um, just so happened that that weekend was also their wedding anniversary. So Chris is out in Louisville talking to a round table. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the weekend of, of his wedding anniversary. Oh, and you know, I'm a house guest. And let's say, don't make that mistake again, Christopher. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. Yeah, there you um, go. <laughs> uh, ne next morning, uh, Pete Kolkowski picked me up. Uh, he and I had breakfast at the Waffle House as he took me back up to D.C. for my Sunday afternoon flight. I flew all night, uh, laying in Anchorage at, at midnight, sleep in the Anchorage airport for like four and a half hours get on the early 
flight out of Anchorage back to Homer. Uh, Landon, Landon Homer at 7.15 on a Monday morning. One of my board members at my previous job was at the airport dropping off his wife. Hmm. So he gave me a ride home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I jumped in the shower, had wow. breakfast, and went to work. Hmm. Um, hmm. You know, I, you know, my previous employer knew all I told them was I had to go out of town for a weekend on, on short notice. You know, didn't say any more than that, but, uh, but yeah, it was, um, it was a whirlwind and, and, you know, Pete and I on the drive up, up to DC after breakfast that morning, kind of, you know, talked about terms. Um, they gave me a, a copy of a book, um, Fighting the Second Civil War by uh, Bob Zeller, which is a, a book that was commissioned by the American Battlefield Trust, kind of the history of, of the trust. They gave me the, the office's copy of that to read and said, oh, just bring this, just return this to the office when you come back. Hmm. Uh, they gave me that in the middle of the job interview, so I kind of figured it was you know, yeah. going to work out just fine. It was a golden egg, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, so within, you know, within a couple of days, I was told, well, you know, we want to hire you, but had to wait for it to be official for the board of directors to vote on it, which was the end of April. So, um, so that happened. And, you know, the last day of April 2019, I, I gave notice, um, you know, to my, to my board president at, at the radio station in Alaska, I wasn't looking to leave. I was not, I was, you know, sometimes things just, you know, present themselves to you and say, well, it's an opportunity to, to do history and to, to, you know, and it's quite honestly more administrative and, and running a nonprofit up than doing history full time. But I get to do enough history that it's, you know, mm -hmm. you know, that, that it's, it's, it's fun and it's challenging. So, um, so that's how that happened. Um, I left Alaska in early June 2019. I drove, uh, which was was quite an experience. That was about 5,000 miles. Oh, my uh, goodness to get from, me. <laughs> to get from Homer, Alaska to Fredericksburg, Virginia. Whoa. It was 3,000 3, miles. This is how vast Alaska is and how vast Canada is. Wow. It was 3,000 miles for me from when I pulled out of my apartment building in Homer, Alaska, to just crossing back into America in Montana. I pretty much dropped straight down through Canada, uh, re-entered re the states here um, just above Glacier National Park, um, which you, you, you come down through Canada, you follow the, the Alaska Highway, the Alcan, um, all the way through the Yukon and British Columbia kind of, you know, went south, southeast to the Edmonton, Alberta uh, area, and then dropped straight south from there. That was 3,000 miles. Wow. Uh, I had, I had a Ron Chernow's grant as an audiobook uh, in my car. And that, that book as an audiobook is over 48 hours long. Hmm. 
Um, you know, Charnow could use an edit, I'll just say that. Um, and I wasn't anywhere close to being done with it by the time I dropped back into to the lower 48. It wasn't until sometime in either South or North Dakota or Minnesota by the time I finally finished the book. Hmm. But, um, you know, dropped down into, into Glacier National Park. Um, I'm a National Parks guy. And so I got to spend a couple of hours in, in Glacier National Park. Then, uh, you know, stopped for the night in, in Grand Forks. Uh, went, went cross country from there, um, picked up the interstate again uh, shortly before Theodore Roosevelt National Park in, in North Dakota, stopped there for a couple of hours, um, overnighted in, in Bismarck, North Dakota, uh, came through uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, stopped at Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore. Um, which was actually my, my fifth national park uh, at that point on the trip. Uh, stayed overnight near there, drove into Pennsylvania, uh, stayed with my mom for about a week. Uh, that corresponded uh, with, uh, with my 50th birthday. Uh, happened on that trip. Uh, after being in Pennsylvania for about a week, I continued on here to Virginia. Um, did not call Chris for directions. Actually, you know, no. Google Maps is a fantastic resource. Yeah. yeah. And I I called him around the point when I was in um in Culpeper, saying, Hey, I'm in Culpeper, you know, about how long is that? He says, Oh, you're probably, you know, 30, 45 minutes. And it was about 45 minutes later, I pulled him to his driveway. Um, well, in all the intervening years. I'd usually um, come out of Alaska either in October or in February and, and come, to, come to Pennsylvania. And most of those times would correspond with when he'd be at St. Bonaventure teaching in person. Mm-hmm. And he'd come over to, to Erie, Pennsylvania, and, and he and I would have lunch together. That would be our like once a year, you know, in-person meeting. And if he had a, a new book, he'd, you know, Give me a copy of his book, uh, and um, and so that was uh, that was how all that kind of uh, you know worked out. Okay, you know that's awesome. Uh, Chris provided me with the introduction to the rest of the board, and then he, you know, you know he did not participate in in the process of my hiring. You know beyond that point because of, of our personal relationship and, and it being a conflict. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's been going since 1996, uh, Central Virginia Battlefield Trust. So tell us a little bit about the history behind it all, please. Um, what, what is today the, the American Battlefield Trust, at the time it was the Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites, was actually founded here in in Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the modern preservation movement w- was founded here. And after several years, they became national in scope and they relocated their headquarters up to the Washington, D.C. area. Well, there was a group of, of local individuals, um, Jim Pates, who's still a member of the CVBT Board of Directors, uh, Dr. Mike Stevens, uh, Enos Richardson, uh, Johnny Mitchell. 
and um, and a handful of other individuals who were the original board of directors. Um, the the early meetings that led to the, the founding of the organization uh, involved several dozen people. Uh, they decided they wanted to to still focus, have a focus on these four battlefields here locally. And so they decided that it was you know, a good idea necessary to, to form a, a locally focused grassroots organization. Uh, the, the story I love to tell, and it, and it was talked about in the early days, of the, the lost battlefield, the Salem Church battlefield. Um, all that is preserved today is a postage stamp area around the historic Salem Church mm-hmm. that stood at the time of the battle <clears throat> and monuments for uh, two New Jersey regiments that are just uh, just east of the church. In 1977, there was a, a farmer that owned, you know, all the land, you know, around there that w- was not developed. And uh, he was interested in selling, and he was interested in selling to the National Park Service. And he wanted $300,000 for the land. The National Park Service had an appraisal done, and it appraised out at $275,000. By law, the National Park Service can only pay appraised value for land. So for the want of $25,000 in 1977, you know, all that area around the Salem Church was sold to developers. And that's the land that is on the the west side of Salem Church Road, uh, where, you know, the fast food restaurants in the bank and the big giant uh, park and ride, you know, lot are. Um, so, you know, that's just the way, you know, it, it worked out. You know, you have, you have to set limits somewhere and it's, you know, it's a wise business decision. Uh, no, for the fact that the National Park Service can only pay what it can pay. And that is, that would take an act of Congress to change. Um, so by the time 1996, 1997 comes along, you know, the, the precursor to the American Battlefield Trust exists as a national organization. And in, in August of 1996, you know, we were founded. And in early 1997, um, the Montfort Academy, which was a private uh, Catholic school that sat on Willis Hill between the Fredericksburg National Cemetery and the historic Brompton, uh, which was the, the Marie House and is, um, and at that time and now is the uh, house of the president of the University of Mary Washington, uh, at the time, Mary Washington College, they were negotiating with the, the good sisters who owned Montford Academy to buy the 10 acres between the National Cemetery and, and Brompton. Uh, they were going to build athletic fields for the college on it. Well, the National Park Service was also interested in the property. And I, this story is a perfect example of multiple partners in the community working together for preservation. The, the, good, the good sisters who own Monfort Academy, 
agreed to sell to the National Park Service for the same price that, that the then Mary Washington College was going to pay. The college agreed not to get into a bidding war with the National Park Service. So if, if NPS was able to, to, to close the deal, the college would step aside and, and not get into a bidding war and not try to pursue, pursue the purchase. Um, the appraisal and what the other parties had previously agreed to, there was a gap in there. In steps the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust with an investment of $20,000 from CVBT. The National Park Service was able to buy Willis Hill and bring it into the National Park. So that was CVBT's first uh, save. Nice. Yeah. And, and that is a beautiful spot as well, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, you know, you know it, it, it was, you know, an amazing opportunity. And it was, you know, everybody played well together. Everybody was willing to, you know, work together to save that very important piece of, of battlefield and, and, and leave it preserved. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's, and that's one of the, the key tenets of CVBT. We work with willing sellers. You know, we work with people who are willing to, to do business with us to preserve land. And um, some other key features of the battlefield that are in the national park today that, that we, you know, acquired or helped acquire and then turned over to the National Park Service. Pardon me. There's a, a five-acre piece in front of the um, Jackson flank attack site where you would pull off of Route 3 to go out to the Jackson flank attack uh, site on the driving tour. It's uh, stop eight on the Chancellorsville Battlefield driving tour. Uh, a, a chunk of that near that driveway that fronts Route 3, we bought and, you know, turn it, you know, eventually turn it over to the National Park. Um, McClaw's Wedge on the other side of the Chancellorsville Battlefield, uh, we purchased and turned over to, to NPS. That was 99 acres. Um, Latimer's Knoll on the south end of the Fredericksburg battlefield. Uh, we, were, we were involved in that purchase and turning that over to, to NPS, and that's 104 acres. Um, and we had two separate pieces at Grants Knoll in the wilderness, Grants, uh, the location of Grants headquarters uh, during the Battle of Wilderness. Um, in late 2019, we turned 16 of those acres over to the National Park Service for inclusion in the park. And also, um, at the wilderness, uh, the land where the historic crossroads of the Germana Road and the Orange Turnpike are in the area around Wilderness Tavern on the south side of Route 3, we originally acquired 93 acres, 30 of those acres we turned over to, to the National Park to be included in, in the park there. So we've had, you know, we've had some, you know, very significant pieces of land within the boundaries of the national park that are now part of the national park that we've preserved and also um you know important you know places of of battlefield outside the the national park boundary 
Uh, at Myers Hill, we're up to 91 acres. At Poe River, we've got 40 acres. Uh, we've got five acres at, at Harris Farm. Um, ourselves and the American Battlefield Trust, um, either in collaboration with each other and sometimes separately from one another, um, we've done hundreds of acres of, of Jackson's flank attack, uh, you know, combined uh, between us. Uh, we helped out the American Battlefield Trust earlier this year with 141 acres at Todd's Tavern. So, um, you know, the work is never ending. The work continues. Uh, historically, uh, we've helped preserve around 1,700 acres. Um, some of that the American Battlefield Trust owns, uh, such as Slaughter Pen Farm in First Aid Chancellorsville and, and Todd's Tavern. Uh, some of that uh, we own, such as you know, uh, Pelham's Corner at the south end of the Fredericksburg Battlefield. Um, you know, a whole bunch of properties out on, on Chancellorsville on, on both sides of the battlefield first day and the flank attack. Um, you know, the wilderness we own, um, we own about 75 uh, acres or so still around the wilderness crossroads area. So, um, you know, the work is ongoing and, and it continues. Mm -hmm. So what is the day-to-day -day running of CVBT for you? What does it involve for you? Um, it is, you know, it is the running of a, of a nonprofit organization. Um, that is, you know, correspondence with, you know, donors, potential donors, with, uh, with property owners who we may be reaching out to, to, to gauge interest or to, um, negotiate a, a property acquisition. It's, um, doing fundraising. It's interacting with, with our donors. Uh, it's, you know, working on the website, working on, uh, you know, email correspondence, working on social media. Um, it's, you know, sometimes writing articles and pieces for our magazine, which goes out twice a year to our, our member donors. Uh, we write a, a monthly column for the Civil War News, which we all take turns on. Uh, myself, Tim Talbot, who's our chief administrative officer, um, Tom Van Winkle, our board president, and, and other board members, we kind of rotate uh, that responsibility around. It's um, communicating and collaborating with our colleagues at the American Battlefield Trust. Uh, it's uh, pursuing grant opportunities from the American uh, Battlefield Protection Program uh, Fund, the Virginia Battlefields Protection Fund, uh, other people and organizations that write grants. Uh, it's also working with our colleagues at, at Civil War Trails. The um, site at Harris Farm is an official Civil War Trails site. Uh, they have a, uh, an interpretive panel there that is branded with their branding, the Civil War Trails. We have a couple of additional ones there that, that are our branding. 
A uh, matter of fact, I've been working recently with them on updating uh, our interpretive panels there, and we hope to have new panels installed, um, you know, very shortly later this summer. Uh, they're they're in the production process as we speak. So, um, you know, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of administrative work. It is a lot of, you know, running of an organization. Um, you know, and I knew coming in that that's what it would be. And it's not getting to personally do a lot of history. Mm -hmm. Organizationally, we do a lot of history because mm -hmm. the land, saving the land is telling the story of history. Yeah. Um, no different than my previous career, you know, running, you know, a radio station, I didn't get to do a whole lot of radio because my job was to run the organization so that other people could do radio. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, you know, you know, this is similar in that way. Uh, you know, I'm running the organization so that, you know, people can eventually come and, and visit the land and experience history on their own. Um, you know, Tim and, and the board members who who write stuff they do they do much more of the, the the writing of history than i do but by going out on the land when i go out there to, to check on it or meet with people about preserving it um or do those sorts of things that is when i get the opportunity to practice history as a historian. Mm -hmm. so, um, and, and that's a fantastic thing. Okay, cool. So last year you did celebrate your 25th birthday. Um, so what was it like organizing the conference? Um, I remember you were saying that you had to buy a lot of beer for the uh, party at the office. Oh, uh, well, we, we went back to our roots. Uh, historically, Organizationally, we we do our annual meeting on a property that we save. Um, at some point, that changed, and we transitioned to doing conferences based out of out of hotels. And pardon me, and, and doing tours, and having the the annual meeting and the banquet in a hotel banquet hall. Uh, last year, we decided to. Um, to throw back to, to what we used to do, we put up a tent on one of our properties uh, on our website. If you uh, look for the property that is called the Stonewall Brigade track, uh, that is where we held it. It's, it's about 10 acres. It is uh, very close to uh, the Chancellorsville Visitor Center, just, um, just west. Uh, of there and it's on the opposite side of route three on the south side of the road and um we brought we brought in a a, a local barbecue uh, restaurant as the caterer uh put up a tent tables and everything um and and held the, the banquet and everything out there uh di different kind of way to organize uh a conference in an annual meeting than than what it was in previous years and then and of what it is this year because um you know uh you know we'll have our annual conference this year in october we we used to do it in the spring every year 
And last year we moved it to the fall uh, because of, of COVID issues were still kind of you know, in flux in the spring. And also by putting it in the fall, we, we got it away from other uh, preservation organizations who do spring uh, annual meetings and, and conferences. And so being in the fall, we've kind of, um, Cleared, cleared the decks and, and, and have, uh, you know, have the, the time more to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it, w- it was an interesting thing because we, uh, we had to do it as a car caravan because of COVID, trying to make it as COVID safe and friendly as possible. So we had people meet us at our tour sites. We did, we did an opening reception at our office on Thursday night and about about two thirds of the attendees showed up there and checked in and got, got their registration kits and everything and their maps and, and where to meet us the, the next morning, which was at Salem church for a tour there. And then we did, we did lunch at a, in a picnic pavilion at one of the city parks. And, um, and then we did an afternoon tour at the, at the sunken road and, and Willis Hill dinner Saturday night out at the Stonewall Brigade track under the tent, like the picture shows. And then Sunday morning, uh, we do a, a, a breakfast at Stevenson Ridge on the uh, Spotsylvania battlefield. And last year, our keynote speaker was uh, Will Green, who was uh, one of the founding fathers of the, the preservation movement. And, um, was the the first head of the Association for the Preservation of of Civil War Sites. Uh, He had taken a a sabbatical from the National Park Service. He worked here at uh, Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania National Military Park uh, to lead lead that organization in its its first year. Uh, So um, really complicated, a lot of work. Um, You know, this year we're we're back to a bus tour and a banquet location, uh, which was challenging in its in its own way to organize. Um, this year's conference is happening September 30th through October 2nd. Um, we we have a, a, an opening reception at our office again on on the Friday night. Uh, on Saturday, we're having a screening of of the film uh, Fire on the Rappahannock, which was a uh, documentary of the reenactment for the 150th um, anniversary of the, the Battle of Fredericksburg. Uh, my, our board president, Tom Van Winkle, uh, used to have a video production company and they produced the event. And it is, they embedded themselves right in the middle of the reenactors. And so you see the, the reenactment from 10 years ago, kind of, you know, in the first person view, point of view of, you know, the people who took part of it. Um, that's going to be screened at the, the downtown Fredericksburg branch of the uh, Rappahannock Regional Public Library. Uh, from there, we'll walk out the back door of there onto Sophia Street and walk the block and a half down to the upper uh, crossing. Um, after after a lunch at, at Brock's Grill, uh, we're shoot down to the city dock area, which is the location of the historic middle crossing. 
Uh, we'll have a, a brief presentation there and then have everybody jump back on the bus and we'll drive you know, up the hill and around the corner uh, to Caroline Street and uh, Charlie McDaniel, who's on my board of directors, is the owner of the historic Sentry Box home, which is above the center, the, the middle crossing. And he will be uh, providing a, a guided tour of the historic Sentry Box and his uh, you know, personal collection of, of Civil War weapons and, uh, and other material. And there'll be a, a, a brief conversation of the street fighting that took place along Caroline Street on that end of the in that area of the battlefield. From there, back on the bus, and we'll go down to Prospect Hill um, for a, a presentation and tour of the action at the south end of the battlefield um, and Stonewall Jackson's position and the, the attack through uh, the Slaughter Pen Farm. That'll wrap up the touring. Um, the, the banquet that evening will be at Historic Belmont in, um, uh, in Falmouth, right across the river. Uh, that was a, that's a historic structure that was, was there at the time and is also now an art museum. Later owners of the property were, uh, were artists in the early and mid 20th century. And so uh, the location is, is owned by the University of Mary Washington and is an art museum and everything. They have a banquet room where you can look out on, on the Rappahannock from there. And uh, John Hennessy, recently retired uh, chief historian and head of interpretation for the, the National Park here in Fredericksburg, will be uh, doing a presentation on uh, the Union occupation of Fredericksburg in earlier 1862, prior to the battle. Uh, Sunday morning, uh, breakfast will be at Stevenson Ridge and we will have a historian roundtable um, talking about the Battle of Fredericksburg and the war, war in Fredericksburg and, and the aftermath. And that will be uh, you know, John Hennessy and Frank O'Reilly and uh, uh, Sarah K. Byerly uh, and Scott Walker and a host of others. Mm -hmm. And uh, quite honestly, tickets are almost sold out we, for the full weekend. We have a, a Saturday night banquet only ticket available and there's plenty of those. Uh, but the, the full weekend ticket is, is limited by, uh, you know, the, the size of, of the bus and the size of the, the room for lunch. And we are down to under, you know, 10 tickets left for, for the full weekend. Uh, you can find out more about that and ticket availability and, you know, availability for, for just the banquet at our website, cvbt.org. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right there. And, and just click on annual conference 2022 and that'll give you all the details. And uh, if people want to support the trust, um, you know, just in general, um, they go to the website as well, or can you do it through the Facebook page and Instagram page and as well, or is it just the website? Uh, right, right now it's just through the website. Um, on on the screen where where our heads are, right behind where where we're located on the screen, there is a donate button. And on any of the, you know, pages you go to about any of the properties, there there are donate buttons. 
But uh, once you get to the website, you will have no problem finding a donate, a, a donate button. No, and you can choose membership levels as well if you wanted to, if you really wanted to support this great cause, couldn't you? Absolutely. Um, you know, our, our base membership is $35. We have a, a generals club of of a thousand and above, which uh, has some special, uh, you know, perks to it. Uh, but you can you can give whatever amount is that you're comfortable with. That's that's right for your budget. Um, you know, the as I like to say, you save the battlefields through your contribution to the organization. I'm just the vessel that it's done through. Mm-hmm. And uh, just quickly, um, anything? I know you can't really go into too much detail on stuff that you're working on at the moment, but is there anything exciting coming up in the next twelve months that you will be involved in? Well, we are always pursuing new opportunities. Uh, our policy is to not talk about them until we have, you know, pen to paper. But the current project that we are working on. Uh, with the American Battlefield Trust uh, is the preservation of the Dowdall's Tavern location on the Chancellorsville Battlefield. That is a 42-acre site. Uh, Dowdall's Tavern was Union General O.O. Howard's uh, headquarters for the Union 11th Corps. It's also the location of the the Bushback Line, which was the last line of defense against uh, Stonewall Jackson's flank attack. Uh, pretty much where, where the Union Army made their their last stand. Um, the the you know really known for the 154th New York. Uh, that was their location, and, and that is there's a small monument uh, on the front of the property near uh, Virginia Route Three. That is to the 154th uh, New York, and. Uh, that that project is is currently in progress and uh our part of that is uh, sixty seven thousand five hundred dollars and we are actively fundraising that and if you uh go to our website and you scroll down <clears throat> pardon me scroll down that fr- first page it will bring you to some information about that all's tavern and you just click on that and it'll take you to a page uh about that all's tavern that you can find out the history about it, uh, the preservation work that's that's being done there and how you can support it. Okay, thanks, Terry. Um, so before we finish the podcast, um, I want to talk about a little uh, historical uh, man crush you have, and that is Sir Winston Churchill. So tell us how that comes about. Um, that happened at some point when I was, um, was growing up. Um, there was a series on public television uh, here in the States called Winston Churchill, The Wilderness Years. And I kind of stumbled across that on, on the television and watched it. And then I eventually found, you know, this book here, which I got to put it in front of my face for you to see it. It's, you know, Martin Gilbert's Winston Churchill, The Wilderness Years. And the, the copy of it that I have is a tie-in to the public television masterpiece theater uh, miniseries. And so that was the first book that I read about Winston Churchill um, and seeing seeing that series. And so I 
you know, I'm, I'm the kind of reader and I'm the kind of historian, I find something and I find out more about it and it takes me down a rabbit hole mm-hmm. uh, to the next thing and the next thing. And um, I wrote a couple of papers in college about them. Um, about Churchill, and then I started uh, collecting books. <laughs> and my, uh, my personal library, books either by or about Winston Churchill, sits at slightly over 100. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, I, I, ha- I have the entire um, Gilbert, you know, quote-unquote authorized biography, the eight volumes, uh, the first two uh, written by Randolph Churchill, uh, I've actually read seven of the eight volumes over the years. The, the last volume deals with his, um, the last 20 years of his life. It is about you know, yay thick if you've never seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I've got, and I'm kind of looking over my shoulder at the, the bookshelf with all the Churchill stuff on it. I have um, his four volumes on the history of the English speaking peoples, the six volumes of um, the Second World War, um, I have a, an unabridged version, but it's in two volumes of the First World War in a real nice slipcase and everything. Um, I have both volumes of the River War that a couple of years ago, the International Churchill Society, pardon me, helped facilitate a reprinting of, of, of that book, completely unabridged. And, uh, and annotated by uh, Dr. James uh, Muller of the University of Alaska, Anchorage, who's um, uh, part of the International Churchill Society. He's the kind of the chief historian of the organization. And um, it, it's a fantastic uh, uh, republication of it. Uh, absolutely gorgeous, well done. That was $175, but absolutely worth it. Um, I've got um, his the Boer War, which I've I've read um, the uh, Malkin Field Force, which I read that around the time that the uh, U.S. was pulling out of Afghanistan. Because mm-hmm. well, you know it's it, it was it was timely, and yeah. you know I've always been able to find a way to tie what's happening in modern moments to to history and you know i can do a pretty good job of pulling a book off the shelf that that matches up with it mm-hmm. um and kind of just looking over um and, and this is a thing once want... again. And, and i so... i have uh, collections of his his wartime speeches and everything so mm-hmm. and, and you'll probably I, know I, this I, as well his mother was actually american wasn't she yes um, absolutely and he had a fascination and, with the american civil war yeah, and a, a couple of the things that um, that I have in the library uh, in the '90s, his grandson Winston pulled all the stuff out of the history of the English-speaking peoples that was that focused on the United States, and published that as a standalone book, which is a great read. And you know, like I said, unfortunately, I don't think it, it shows up, but I have in my hand another little one. The American Civil War by Winston Churchill. So, yeah. And this is, uh, they, they pulled the chapter about the American Civil War in the history of the English-speaking peoples out and published that, that as a standalone book. 
-hmm. and and that's a great little read plus uh what he wrote about coming to these battlefields here in central virginia in 1929 i believe and also he wrote a a counterfactual to a counterfactual um back in the early 1930s about um the the topic was what if lee had not won gettysburg so so Chir churchill wrote a, an alternative history as a magazine piece based off of you know a, a what if he used uh -huh. it as a premise that that lee wins gettysburg mm. and there you know attacks washington and takes washington dc um at that point lee then frees all the slaves in the south lincoln sues for peace because at that time you know emancipation that was the that was a, the war aim war is over you have two countries here uh england has always stepped in to kind of help keep the uneasy peace here on north america between the united states of america and the confederate states of america and have um you know an english-speaking you know league of of those three nations of of great britain the usa and the csa that just happens to be meeting in london in 1914 when the Archduke Ferdinand is assassinated. Uh -huh. So at that moment, the three English speaking nations offer to mediate and they prevent World War I from happening, which then prevents, you know, yeah. the defeat of Germany and prevents the, the rise of Hitler and so prevents World War II. And so, yeah, he bases it all on a what if of a what if yeah that's really interesting yeah and i love it the the treaty that that ends the american civil war in in churchill's counterfactual is the treaty the 1863 treaty of harper's ferry yeah and that so so that's a great little you know you know i know there's a lot of people out there who don't like you know the whole what ifs that that's you know history is interesting enough that you don't have to create alternate history but that's a that's a fun little read and a fantastic little read so yeah, um, okay, yeah. so yeah anyway. you can knock that out in about 15 minutes it was a a magazine piece originally i i think for scriveners mm -hmm. well anyway mate it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you i really appreciate you coming on um if so I, if I can or just yeah um, carry on, mate. no add add one quick thing because i know it's uh We've gone on almost an hour, 45 minutes. Um, early on, when you showed the picture of, of my hometown, Gerard, Pennsylvania, with the clock, there was a monument yes. in the background. Oh, yes. That. Yes. That is, that is the monument that um, Dane Rice, who was a famous circus clown uh, in the middle uh, 19th century, he wintered his army, uh, or wintered his army, wintered his circus in Gerard. And um, he had that monument built in 1865. Um, and it is a monument to the, the Civil War debt. And it is one of the early monuments 
um, at the time. Um, I'll wait for you to get there back there. there yeah. Yes, the, the monument back back <clears throat> there in the background. Um, uh, Dan Rice, famous circus clown, he was, uh, folklore says, Folklore says he was the model for Uncle Sam. Um, of course, the truth is a little more complicated. He was one of the inspirations for the Uncle Sam character. As part of his outfit in his circus, he did wear a suit similar to the suit that you see in the portrayal of Uncle Sam, the whole Stars and Stripes thing in the hat. Um, he wore something that looked similar, so he was one of several inspirations for Uncle Sam is probably the truth. Um, he had a Southern wife. So his, and, and the circus had traveled widely in the South prior to the Civil War. So there were, you know, questions about, you know, about his loyalty. So he was always, you know, very pro-union in things. So in, in the fall of 1865, that monument was, was dedicated in the center of Girard. Um, that's a little island. The, the road there splits around the island in, in both directions. And um, there are stories you know, saying that that was the first monument to Civil War dead. You can make uh, arguments against that because you had you know, soldiers creating monuments on the battlefields during the war. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was uh, the first privately funded, you know, monument to Civil War dead erected in, in the States. And that was in November uh, 1865. And, um, and Dan Rice being a, a performer, the day of the dedication, huge speech, how, you know, he was giving this, this monument to, you know, to the town and to the people, you know, as a gift, you know, no one would ever know, you know, it would never be remembered that it was done by him. The next morning, the people who lived uh, in, in the downtown area, um, just off the picture to, to your left, looking at it on the screen, was where his house stood today. That is the, the Gerard Borough building sits on, on that piece of ground. But the next morning, people hear, <laughs> you know, someone chiseling in stone out there. <laughs> the next morning, there was a guy out there engraving, donated by Dan Rice, into the southern face of that monument. That after all the, all the big wigs went, the governor was there, you know, military men were there. Yeah, the next morning after the town went back to, you know, quiet, sleepy little town. He had a guy out there chiseling his name in it so that to, for all time it would be known that it was donated by Dan Rice. And that little island, because it's not a square, it's, it's kind of oblong shape, there are Civil War cannons on either end of it. On the eastern end, there is a cannon from uh, 1864 from the A.O. Scott foundry in northeastern Pennsylvania. And on the western end of of that island, uh, there was a cannon from 1861 from one of the ironworks at the Tredegar in, in Richmond. 
don't know anything more about that. They were, they were both donated to the town uh, by an anonymous donor in 1909, but the, the Tredegar Ironworks cannon is, you know, was supposedly Confederate cannon used in the war and, and captured at some point, but mm -hmm. nobody knows where. That's just the, the, the oral history of it in my town. There is no documentation uh, to back that up. Mm -hmm. So, um, and um, story still fantastic. Yeah. And uh, Oliver um, Wilcox Norton, who is one of the historians of the, the 83rd Pennsylvania Regiment, um, wrote the attack and defense of, of the Little Round Top, uh, the 83rd Pennsylvania at uh, Gettysburg, and published a book of his letters. He was also originally from from Girard, and he is. He is given co-creator credit with Daniel Butterfield for creating taps mm -hmm. as, as a bugle call. And, and he was also from, from Girard. He was part of the company in the 83rd Pennsylvania that came from Girard. Wow. So you've got lots of lots of history there. So that's really cool. But yeah, I mean, I didn't see that monument, you know, so uh, that was great. Great. Uh, letting us know about that. Thanks for that, mate. Cheers. Yeah, uh, thank you. And, and, and a, a big chunk of the downtown area there in Gerard are structures that, you know, go back uh, that far. And there is actually still one one house sitting in town that was part of of where Rice uh, wintered his service. Thank you for telling us that. Anyway, um, Terry, thank you for coming on, mate. I really appreciate you telling us that's the the stuff about your town and all the stuff of CBBT. Sorry, I've got my words wrong up then. Um, thanks for joining me, mate. And uh, all the links and that for the uh, organisation will be in the description below. And all that's left to say is thank you, Terry. Baz, thank you very much for having me. And um, I will see you at the Emergency War Symposium uh, here in Fredericksburg in August. You certainly will. Cheers.